Other times it was to Baskin Robbins. But my favorite by far was an old pharmacy and soda fountain shop called LaRue's. Even as kids, we could tell it was kind of on its last legs. But it still had those spinning bar stools and a menu full of seltzers, malts, shakes, floats. I loved getting a root beer float. Even today, some of my most vivid childhood memories are of those surprise outings. Surprises can also lock in memories for a whole society. Many people remember where they were when they first saw a man walk on the moon or what they were doing when they heard that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And maybe most of us here remember what we were doing when we heard that Donald Trump was elected president. Whether good or bad, happy or sad, surprises have a way of getting etched into our memories. And our passage today is full of surprises, God-ordained surprises that are meant to teach us lessons that we should not forget. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. Go ahead and open your Bibles there now. At this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' ministry is really underway. We see him teaching, healing, confronting opponents, and revealing to all that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the verses leading up to our passage are actually a good microcosm of Jesus' ministry. At the end of chapter 14, early on in chapter 15, we see Jesus healing the sick, rebuking the Pharisees, teaching the disciples. Soon after our passage, the Gospel of Matthew is going to shift in a, in a particularly significant way. Jesus is going to start teaching not only that he's the Messiah, but that the Messiah must suffer. And he's going to begin his march to Jerusalem, where he would hang on a cross for our sins. So that's the context of our passage. Let's read it now. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Well, if you're a note-taker this morning, I've got five points, and they're all surprises. Surprise number one, a departure. Surprise number two, a Canaanite. Surprise number three, silence. Surprise number four, a response. And surprise number five, a commendation. Let's start with surprise number one, a departure. Our first surprise comes right away 
in the first sentence. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. The there referenced in this verse that Jesus was withdrawing from was Gennesaret, a Jewish region on the Sea of Galilee. Of Galilee. We get that from the previous chapter. While Jesus did go to predominantly Gentile areas within Israel, like Decapolis, this is the only time in all four Gospels that Jesus goes outside the traditional boundaries of Israel. Tyre and Sidon were two Gentile cities in what is South Lebanon today. These cities were often the object of condemnation by Old Testament prophets for their Baal worship and arrogant materialism. So, if you were a first century Jewish reader, and you read this verse, you would have immediately perked up. You would have immediately taken notice. What? Jesus is going where? He's going to Tyre and Sidon? Why? Jesus was up to something. It was not a distraction. It wasn't by accident. And yet still, why would he choose to leave Israel? Very quickly, the verb withdrew may be a surprise to some. Yes, the Son of God needed breaks. And just by the choice of this one verb, Jesus' humanity penetrates through. Like us, Jesus grew tired. And yet even in withdrawing, Jesus was on a mission. Surprise number two, a Canaanite. Verse 22 gives us the next wrinkle in the story. Look with me there. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This is the only time in the New Testament we see the word Canaanite. We know from the Old Testament that Canaanite essentially means a non-Jewish pagan. It was a kind of of generic description used in Joshua for the native peoples of the Promised Land. The point is that she is not of the covenant people of Israel, but from a historic enemy of God's people. So the fact that a Canaanite woman would approach Jesus at all was highly unusual. The fact that she's a Canaanite makes what she says next all the more intriguing. She calls Jesus Lord, son of David. How significant was this? Well, Lord was a title that was used, but pretty rarely, to show great respect. Sometimes it was meant to refer to the divine, sometimes not. Son of David, on the other hand, is really interesting. The term is a reference to the promised messianic deliverer from the line of David, whose kingdom would continue forever. It evoked images of a Messiah with a royal lineage who would establish the throne in Jerusalem and the kingdom of Israel. But here, we have a Gentile using a term that makes you think of a promised deliverer and liberator of the Jewish people, the return of a Jewish king. Up until now, in Matthew's gospel, only an angel in a dream and a couple of blind men in chapter 9, and then a crowd once as a question used this messianic title of Jesus. It will only be used one other time, and that's once again by a blind man in the last week of Jesus' ministry. Somehow, it wasn't the religious leaders of the day or the people that grew up with Jesus in Nazareth or so many other Israelites, but this Canaanite woman who doesn't even live in Israel, who recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Now that's surprising. Did you also notice that she says, have mercy on me and not have mercy on my daughter? It wasn't her that was demon-possessed. It was her daughter. But this mother so closely identifies with her daughter that it would be a mercy to her if her daughter were cured. 
this is actually one part of our message that maybe isn't all that surprising. As any parent knows, when your son or daughter gets sick, or skins his knee, or has to go to the ER, or is made fun of by supposed friends, it's like you too were injured, or sick, or belittled. Their pain is your pain. Their grief is your grief. Their struggles are your struggles. I remember when our daughter Lorea was born prematurely, spent weeks in the NICU. Aaron wanted to be with her every second. It was like a part of Aaron was missing when she wasn't with Lorea. And she would do anything, give anything, for Lorea to get out of that hospital and back home as a healthy girl. Such is a parent's love. And here's the neat thing about our passage. God our Father feels even greater love towards his children. The love you've felt for your children is but a tiny picture of the abounding love that God has for us. His love gushes. It overflows. It goes on and on. It, there is no sin that can use it all up. Very quickly, we get a 3D picture of this love that so closely identifies with its object. Right before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus saw the tears of those who cared for Lazarus. And what did Jesus do? He cried too. Even though he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from, their de- from the dead, their pain was his pain. Parents, I trust you are pained by your children's trials. It's almost an innate react- reaction that we suffer when our kids suffer. And we should do all we can to help our children. Take them to the doctor, get advice from other parents, be intentional with our parenting, read good books, see counselors, and on and on we could go. But let us not neglect going to the feet of our Lord and begging him for mercy like the Canaanite woman. Do you cry for help, parents, knowing that you can't parent on your own? In good times and in bad, easy times and hard times, how often are you on your knees for your children? Trials are for our good. I wouldn't wish the severe oppression of a demon on anyone especially not my children. But the affliction of her daughter brought this Canaanite woman to Jesus. What trials has the Lord put in your life to bring you closer to him? That brings us to our third surprise, silence. So what does Jesus do when he hears this woman's cries? Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. You'd be hard-pressed to find another example of Jesus not responding to someone like this. Usually he encourages all to come to him, sometimes answering them before they even call. But not here. How are we to react to this silence? Well, for starters, if we know Jesus, then we know the reason for his silence is not because he doesn't care. He's up to something. The 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon said this about Jesus' silence. I could no more believe that Christ would repulse a sinner than I can look upon the sun and think it will freeze me. But in the moment, even if Jesus knew what he was doing and not answering her, the Canaanite woman didn't. So it's not hard for us to imagine how this could have been deeply discouraging to her. This Jesus, who is known for caring for the weakest and poorest and lowest in society, this Jesus, who had healed so many, this Jesus, who was so attentive to the cries of those that needed him, This Jesus doesn't even answer her. 
but behold this Canaanite woman. When Jesus doesn't answer her, she doesn't walk away. She doesn't despair. She doesn't mutter to herself, well, that guy wasn't who he was advertised to be. She really doesn't show any sign of discouragement. She cries yet more. She may have not known why Jesus wasn't answering her, but she knew deep down who Jesus was. That kept her going. She persevered in faith. Surprise number four, a response. The next we hear about this woman is in verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. The woman's response to Jesus' silence isn't to retreat, but to draw closer, to come before him and kneel. Her cry is now shortened to just three words, Lord, help me. What a powerful prayer. There is not one word to spare. Stripped down of all flowery speech, it is plain, it is simple, it is real. God doesn't want highfalutin, fancy, grandiose prayers. Our prayers don't have to be long-winded, but they have to be from the heart. This was not some mindless repeating of a rote prayer. When the woman cried out to Jesus, her prayer leapt red-hot from her soul. And now, at the feet of Jesus, her prayer begged him in humility. In these few words, you can almost tangibly feel the weight on her shoulders. She really was at the end of her rope. She had a daughter that she loved, and this daughter was plagued by a demon. Put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Imagine you have a son or a daughter who is demon-possessed. To what lengths would you go to get him or her healed? Well, this woman went to Jesus before the only one who she knew could help. And her prayer was simple. Lord, help me. It's a prayer that you or I could repeat under all sorts of circumstances, and we would do well to do so. This unnamed woman kneeling at Jesus' feet, uttering these simple words, is a beautiful picture of submission to Jesus. I wonder, is that the picture that the strokes of our lives paint? Do we so submit to Christ? Or do we stand tall in our pride and not really go to him at all? It's at this point that the woman finally gets a response. Verse 26, Jesus replies, it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to dogs. This, of course, is an analogy in what Jesus just said to his disciples in the verses before helps us understand it. Up in verse 23, the disciples are griping about her crying, clearly annoyed by it. We see them say, send her away, for she's crying out after us. Before we start thinking, oh, those terrible disciples, I wonder if we can relate. I know I can. Two of my kids will be in the living room together. One will be reading a book, the other one bored. Ward one tries to get his attention. Nate, Nate, Nate. He calls out so many times that my impatience begins to boil over. Just answer him, Nate. And then I know I messed up. Just like the disciples, I let annoyance get the best of me. I was more bothered by inconvenience than I was by needs. 
and they did not respond in love. So no, we shouldn't sugarcoat the disciples' reaction here. This woman is desperate for help. Her daughter is plagued by a demon, and they cared more about their convenience. Maybe they thought less of her specifically because she was other, because she was Canaanite. If so, then that makes the lesson Jesus is about to give all the more important. Just a quick note, if the disciples made up Christianity in the Bible, why would they include this part? It clearly makes them look bad. The Bible wasn't made up. It records what actually happened, regardless of whether or not it makes those who wrote it look good. In fact, for most of Jesus' ministry on earth, the disciples don't look so great. One more verse to build the argument that the Bible wasn't manufactured by man, but is the word of God. In response to the disciples complaining, Jesus tells them in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that unlocks the analogy that follows. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Then the bread is the blessings of the kingdom. The children are the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the covenanted people of God. And the dogs are the Gentiles. Dogs was a common term Jews used at the time to refer to anyone who wasn't Jewish. It was like how Greeks referred to everyone else as barbarians. There also was this connotation of dirtiness with this term, because Gentiles were ceremonially unclean. The natural question is why? Why does Jesus respond to the woman in this way? I can think of at least three reasons. Reason number one, because Jesus did come to minister to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That truth actually is not that surprising to those who are familiar with this gospel. As we've already noted, Jesus spends all of his time, with this one exception, in historical Israel. A few chapters earlier, as Jesus sends out the apostles to share the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and to perform miracles, Jesus instructs them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Throughout the whole Testament, Israelites play a central role in God's plan of salvation. God chose to reveal himself first to the Israelites. The Israelites were to be set apart from all the other nations to be a picture of who the one true God is. And so when Jesus comes to be the true king and the true priest and the true temple, it makes sense that most of his time is spent within ancient Israel ministering to God's chosen people. Reason number two. So the Canaanite woman could see the tested genuineness of her faith. Jesus was not testing her faith in the sense that Jesus didn't know her heart. We know from John 2 that Jesus knew what was in all people. Just like Jesus could see through the heart of the Pharisees to know that they were hypocrites, so too could Jesus see this Canaanite woman's heart. Jesus knew how she would respond to this trial. Jesus knew 1 Peter 1 would be true of her that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This woman was having her faith tested. And through testing, she was going to see that her faith is more precious than gold. Like calling Abraham to offer his son Isaac or allowing Satan to take so much from Job, God tests his children for their good and his glory. This unnamed woman was about to enter into that club. Reason number three, 
because Jesus wants to explicitly point out that this woman is not part of the covenant people of Israel. He wants his audience to know that he knows this woman is seen as other, as not part of the chosen people. Because this will make what he says at the end of this passage all the more surprising to those who are watching and listening and reading. It's like he's casting a spotlight on the fact that she's a Gentile, so they understand how big of a deal what he's about to say is. It's like he's saying, don't miss it. I know full well she is a Gentile, and yes, I mean what I'm about to say next. Still, this could not have been the response that the Canaanite woman was hoping for. She waited so long for an answer, and this is the one she gets. Just like when Jesus was silent, we could see the logic in her choosing to walk away here. You were crying out for an answer. You got one. No, it wasn't the one you were hoping for, but at least now you know. How disheartening this could have been to the woman. And yet the woman still doesn't give up, does she? Obstacles in life are God's mercy. When your faith is tested, will it be revealed as more precious than gold? Will you, like this woman, persevere by God's help? Finally, we see the fifth surprise, a commendation. Look with me at verse 27. In response to Jesus' answer, she said, Yes, Lord, and even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. In reply, the woman doesn't disagree with Jesus about the difference between Jews and Gentiles. She accepts that she is the dog in this analogy. But she also knew that while the primary scope of Jesus' mission while on earth was to the people of Israel, that was not its ultimate limit. And she knew that Jesus' power was so great that even partaking of the crumbs would be sufficient. Just give me the crumbs. The crumbs are going to be enough. Before Paul ever did, this woman saw that Jesus also came to save the Gentiles, indeed the whole world. Her faith was not just persistent, it was perceptive. And so we get to the climax of the passage, verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Instantly is such an interesting word at the end of that, isn't it? Instantly. Because the word of God accomplishes the purposes of God. It's powerful in and of itself. The moment that Jesus says it, the woman's daughter is healed. The only one who can create simply by his word is God. He said, let there be light. There was light. He called dry land to appear, and it did. And so God speaks in our passage, and it is done. The woman's daughter is healed. Yes, this means Jesus is God. Jesus can create by his word, just like God the Father. Friends, God's word is powerful. It is mighty. It creates something from nothing. And we all have it at our fingertips. May we not neglect God's word. May we mine it for treasures everlasting, and may we never doubt its power. But this passage isn't just about Jesus' power over demons or about his divinity that shines through as he heals simply by speaking. Jesus calls this unnamed woman's faith great. And what a gift this is to the woman. It would have been amazing enough for this woman to walk away knowing that her daughter had been healed. That's all she wanted. 
But our God is a generous God. He gives beyond all we could ask or imagine. So now this woman walks away having been commended by her Messiah, knowing that she has eternal life. What an incredible gift. It wasn't the male religious leaders of the day whose faith was called great, nor the Jewish followers of Jesus, nor even the apostles. The one whose faith is called great is an unnamed Canaanite Gentile woman. God uses unlikely vessels because he gets particular glory to himself that way. I don't think that it's a coincidence that just one chapter before this, Jesus calls a disciple's faith little. Kids, look at me for a second. I've got a question for you. Who remembers which disciple sees Jesus walking on the water, gets out of the boat, and walks on the water towards Jesus? Yes, Nate. Peter, good. And did Peter make it all the way to Jesus? No. He was scared by something. Kids, do you remember what he was scared by? Hooper. Close, in part, the water, yes. He was scared he, was, he would fall closer. The storm, part of the storm, it was the wind. It says he was scared by the wind. So Peter comes to him. He's scared by the wind. He begins to sink. And listen to this. Jesus reaches out his hand, takes hold of him, and he says, O oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? This is not a commendation. This is not a compliment. The Canaanite woman was not scared by the wind. She wasn't scared by Jesus' silence. She wasn't scared by the disciples' annoyance. She wasn't scared by Jesus' focus on the house of Israel. She didn't for a second doubt Jesus' power to heal. Friends, don't be scared. Don't doubt. Have great faith. God is worthy of all our trust. Whatever it is that you are struggling to trust God with today, he can handle it. Give your burden over to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what your home life was like growing up or what life was like before you became a Christian. Maybe it was pretty terrible. Maybe you never went to church. Maybe there was addiction that made life miserable. Maybe you never even saw a Bible until you were out of the house. It doesn't matter. God can take a seed planted in the most infertile soil, in the hardest ground, in the coldest place, with little sunlight, and every worldly, worldly reason to believe this seed won't sprout. God can take that seed and make it grow into a plant that grows so tall and abundantly that God himself says, look at this great plant. Look how it flourishes. Great faith is a great thing. This woman clearly loved her daughter. She was undeniably persistent, not quitting and crying out to Christ. If she wasn't humble, she would have bristled at the idea of kneeling before Jesus. She was wise in her response to Jesus, turning the analogy on its head for why she should be blessed. Jesus knew all of this. Jesus knew she was loving and persistent and humble and wise. But none of those things 
is what Jesus commends. Jesus didn't say great is your love for your daughter or great is your persistence or great is your humility or great is your wisdom. Jesus said, great is your faith. Have you ever noticed that in nearly every instance, when someone comes to Jesus for healing, faith is connected to the miracles done? I thought that was a little strange when I would read through the Bible. Well, faith is what unlocks the blessings of Christ. Faith is what holds on to Christ in the darkness. Faith is what makes us persist in the midst of silence. Faith is what bends our knee to the Lord, and faith is what makes us hope in the Savior. Faith and nothing else is God's appointed way through which we come into his kingdom and enjoy all the blessings that flow from it. So the question has to be, do you have faith? All else is window dressing. If there's anyone here this morning that hasn't trusted in Jesus, I wonder, why do you delay? Your situation is actually much worse, much more dire than this Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. Our God is holy. He is righteous, which means he stands for what is good and opposed to what is bad. And that's wonderful. All of us are bad. All of us have sinned. All the people up on stage who led us in worship, all the deacons, all the elders, all the paid pastors, every single member of this church and every human being who is alive today, we have all disobeyed. We have all tried to make ourselves God, doing what we want our own way. We deserve his punishment. We deserve his judgment. But Jesus came down from heaven to become man and was perfect. And just like he had compassion on this woman, so he has compassion on us if we would just believe in him. He gave his life, dying on the cross for our sins, that if we would believe, we would be saved. It really is that simple, and it really is that good. If you're wrestling with this, I'd love to talk with you afterwards, or honestly, you can talk to anyone around you. But whatever you do, don't delay. Don't let this lie. None of us know how much time is left for us. Place your faith in Christ today. And with that pronouncement, great is your faith to a Canaanite woman, is the main lesson of this passage. Jesus came to save the whole world. Jesus affirms to all who are around and to all who would read this that the woman is right. God's love bursts through the borders of Israel. Again, looking back through Matthew, Matthew's gospel and the entire Bible, this was, of course, God's plan all along. Jesus knew that his writ from the Father while he was on earth was to focus on God's covenant people of Israel, but that his ministry would reverberate throughout the nations. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, who were the first heralds of Jesus' birth? The wise men from the east. The wise men of Israel rejected Jesus. In Matthew 8, we see the only other time Jesus commends a person's faith as great. And who is it? That of a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And a few verses after Jesus tells his disciples to only go to the lost sheep of Israel, we just reviewed in Matthew 10, he predicts, quote, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Finally, didn't, Jesus didn't just predict that his disciples would bear witness to the Gentiles, he commanded it. 
at the end of this gospel, chapter 28, Jesus charges them to go and make disciples of all nations. Throughout Matthew's gospel, we get these piercing rays of light coming in to give us an idea about how this good news is for all people. By the time we get to Acts, those piercing rays break through and the light is bursting forth to all nations. Radical change has come. The international church is here. And of course, where would we? Assume most of us Gentiles here in the U.S., where would we be if this wasn't so? Praise God it is. Praise God that this good news is for all of us. That by faith in Christ's death and resurrection, we can all be grafted into the family of God. We are his children because God's love overflows. Because the crumbs from the table are more than enough for us too. To close, I want to briefly talk about perspective and faith. We had the benefit of knowing all that Jesus was doing within seconds as we read through this passage. We know that in the end, Jesus would heal the Canaanite woman's daughter and even commend her faith. It's kind of like we're the ones on the outside of her world looking down on it. And we want to shout, keep going. It's going to get really good. Don't give up. Don't walk away. And in a way, we then can see what it's like from God's viewpoint as he looks down on us during our trials, right? Don't give up, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. No, my love abounds for you, and this is for your good. Don't doubt me. Don't be scared. Persevere. But that wasn't the vantage point for the Canaanite woman during her trial. And that's not our vantage point during our trials. Have you ever wondered what God is up to? His ways can be mysterious and perplexing because he's sovereign and we're not. If that's true, that he knows everything and is all-powerful, we are neither of those things, then by definition, there are going to be times in our lives when we don't know what he is doing or why. I particularly wonder if you've ever felt like Jesus was not answering your prayer. Not that the answer was no, but just silence. Sometimes silence can feel worse than a no, like he was ignoring you or didn't care. I think we have this passage as a key to unlock those puzzling times. You or I, we're not the first ones to get no answer right away, or even after some time. The same thing happened to this Canaanite woman. His silence didn't mean he didn't hear her or didn't care. When Jesus is silent, it isn't because he is bad or doesn't love us. There was a purpose behind the silence, and that purpose was really, really good. To teach us the good news is for all people but it couldn't be known at first, not by the woman, not by the disciples. Yet the woman did not give up hope in Jesus, and neither should we. Like the woman, we should keep crying out. Like the woman, we should fall on our knees with the simple prayer, Lord, help me. And like the woman, if we persevere in faith in Jesus, we will not be disappointed. Jesus will answer.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you gave us this passage to teach us about you. Thank you that your word can be challenging and revealing and convicting. We pray, Father, that we would not just have little faith, but great faith. Faith that produces perseverance. Faith that doesn't doubt your love or power. Faith that isn't deterred by obstacles. We pray that our faith would be genuine, more precious than gold, and result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes again. In your name we pray. Amen.